Welcome to Getting Curious. I'm Jonathan Van Ness. And every week I sit down for a gorgeous conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. On today's episode, I'm joined by Professor Margaret Hiddle, where I ask her, what's the real story of the Oregon Trail? Welcome to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Van Ness. I'm so excited for today's episode. It is major. I've been curious about this for a really long time. But like everything else that I've been curious about since the 90s, I've learned a lot more of like a full intersectional picture of it. Um, So without any further ado, welcome to the show, Margaret Hiddle, who is a scholar of Native American history and North American Wests at University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Her research examines indigenous sovereignty and settler colonization in a transnational context. Welcome, Margaret. How are you? Uh, I am doing just fine. I'm excited to be here. I came on to the idea of the Oregon Trail through the seminal, like, computer game in the 90s, um, you know, playing it with my little brothers when I was, like, six and seven, and really not understanding, like, the full complexity of, and obviously not at six, but at no point did I learn the complexity of that uh, through school, so didn't realize until I was about, like, 24 or 25 that... I didn't fully maybe have the entire story. So can you just define for us what was the Oregon Trail? Like, is it a literal trail? Where did it start? Where did it end? Just so we can all get on the same page. Yeah, so the Oregon Trail is a literal trail, um, and it's one of a couple of major travel routes that went from east to west and that helped the United States achieve its goals of colonizing North America. Um, the others, the other big ones are the California Trail and the Santa Fe Trail. Um, and they all actually started out originally as networks of indigenous roads and trails that are hundreds of years old and that the United States, Britain, France, um, Spain, They became familiar with them through trade, um, through land claiming expeditions like, you know, the infamous Lewis and Clark expedition and then other interactions with indigenous people. And then they were just kind of expanded and surveyed into what became the Oregon Trail, the starting point or jumping off point. If we want to be hip with the 1843 crowd, because that's the name that they used for it, um, is in what's today Missouri. Um, which also has always been Osage, Oto, Missouri, and Pawnee land. Um, it, the trail went through what is currently Nebraska, Wyoming, Idaho, and Oregon, Washington, because it's right at the border there up to the Columbia River. That's a long trail. And so let me get this <laughs> yes. correct, because I think I think what I heard you say is that, like, it wasn't like, you know, colonizers from, like, Western Europe discovered or made these trails. These were actually trails right. that already existed, Native and Indigenous people from, like, what is now referred to as, like, North America. They were already using these trails, honey. None of these, like, you know, Lewis and Clark folks discovered it. They were already there. Yes, Exactly. Yes. And then, um, so the jumping off point, I'm obsessed that that was like the vernacular of the day. When did, like, when did that signpost, like, get, you know, nailed into the thing? Like, was that like 18 something? 1841 to 1869. Those are the classic years of the Oregon Trail. 
Um, and like, um, you know, you might remember this from playing the video game, but it's Independence, Missouri, um, is the, yes. the big, yeah, the big town. And that's, you know, that was accurate. Um, that's where most people started, started out. Yeah. They'd come to St. Louis and either travel over land or take steamboats down the, um, down the Mississippi or Missouri River to, um, to Independence. So, but because people were already, like traveling it before like mm-hmm. 1841 do you do you know about like native or indigenous stories of like when they started using it or like when they kind of were like oh this is cool because you can go all the way over there we usually have this idea of the west as like an empty isolated wilderness um but it was a thriving mobile interconnected space that was full of diverse people dynamic um economies and so part of the thing is that these roads are you know hundreds sometimes thousands of years old you would get chocolate from um like from Mexico and uh, tropical bird feathers all the way up in what's currently Nebraska. You'd get shells from um, California, turquoise. All of these things were being traded across the continent. I love the like, dynamic economy. Come on, like cool, like double <laughs> word. And then in that 1841 to like 1869 bit, like what was happening with the native communities? Were they like, why are all these fucking people in our goddamn backyard? Like what is going on? With these people? Between 1841 and 1869, there were between 350,000 and 500,000 people who made that trail. Um, and they were mostly middle-class white farming families from the Midwest. And then you also get some European immigrants. Um, and you also have both free and enslaved Black people who made the journey as well. Um, so it's a whole bunch of different people. Um, you have everything from like single men to families. Um, lots of people were moving West. And, you know, because in part because Native people had these networks of trade and communication, they knew what was happening. And, you know, you have um, along with settlers being pushed West, you have other Indigenous people being pushed west as they're, you know, um, the history of forced removal from the southeast, from the um, from the New England area. So like here where I am in Nebraska, um, I'm on like Pawnee land, Omaha land. Um, and you started seeing Lenape people um, who were pushed into this area um, and, you know, they had to negotiate like these new alliances and figure out how to get along in this context of increasingly scarce resources and pressure to give up their land from the United States. So prior to 1841, there's already like a massive displacement of Native and Indigenous people based off of like the United States, like colonization and like forced removal. Well, and then this is also going on at the same time as like Mormonism and the gold rush too, right? Yes, exactly. Um, and a whole bunch of other things. Um, there's, you know, all of the conflict about what to do with like new territory that the United States is acquiring, um, and slavery in particular, right? Because this is a time when there were a lot of questions about the expansion or limitation of slavery in the United States. And then, um, there's also, um, in 1837, there was a really big, uh, 
economic recession. Um, it's the panic of 1837. Um, and so, you know, one of the, re- that's one of the reasons why so many people were leaving their farms further east and moving west. I mean, I think that's something that we can actually kind of understand, right? How many of us have friends who, in the past year or two have like left everything and tried to start again somewhere else. That's a pretty, you know, relatable human experience, I think. So how does like what we do learn in our history textbooks or like the Oregon Trail video game or like popular historical fiction, how does this time actually square into what we under or like what the kind of common understanding is? When we think of the popular narrative of Western expansion, which is what like the Oregon Trail game is all about. Um, I mean, this is Western movies. This is the way politicians talk about the growth of the United States. Um, it's these mythic tales of brave people, um, traveling great distances and facing down terrible hardships, mortal peril in this noble quest for a better life. Um, And, you know, in these stories, Native people become another obstacle, like, you know, a treacherous mountain pass or howling wolves that these brave pioneers have to triumph over. The word pioneer erases a lot of history, right? Because when you when you hear the word pioneer, what does it mean? You're thinking like, okay, I don't know why everything is Aaron Brockovich for me, but I'm thinking like badass. We are like making new ways. We are like scared, but we are pressing through anyway. Like you're a, you're a trailblazer if you're a pioneer. Right, exactly. And it ignores the trails and the people that were already very much there and creates this sort of empty, free land that justifies the taking of indigenous lands and justifies like all of the colonialism that happens all the time, always. Yeah, like it's yeah. like on ongoing. How far away is that from the reality of what really happened? Period. I think that's a really hard question to answer because there's so many different overlapping narratives in this one story, right? Because I'm sure... Um, for the, for the families, for the settler families who were traveling west, um, they, they did experience hardship. They, you know, disease, um, accidents, a whole bunch of other things could go wrong every single day. Um, there's like, if you read, uh, travelers journals and stuff, there's just so much diarrhea, like way too much <laughs> diarrhea, more just diarrhea than diarrhea. you ever Is it because yeah. you're, is it because they were like drinking water from like creeks and stuff that maybe had like moose poopy or something else in it? Yes, absolutely. Um, there's, yeah, there's one, uh, one traveler who I just, I will always remember this. He described the water as like living water because it was so full of like algae and mosquito larvae. Um, so, but that's what, that's what they had to drink. That doesn't sound fun. Um, and you know, persevering through that does deserve, I guess, some credit. Um, yeah. On the plus side, uh, they use laudanum to treat diarrhea and laudanum is like laced with opium. So I do think that that probably, you know, helped 
help They're just like, ease mm, the pain. I have some explosive yes. diarrhea, but I'm like, yeah. I feel like I'm in a warm blanket or something. Another part of the story, and this is true in the game, and it's true in like movie depictions and stuff, is this, you know, very individualistic, resourceful white male pioneer who's going out and conquering the wild, untamed lands in the name of like progress and freedom. And that's actually one of the places where the real narrative is very different. Um, even if you're talking about like the fur trader era before the Oregon Trail, those, um, those men were integrating into native communities. They relied on their new kin for knowledge, food, emotional support, all of that. And then when it comes to the Oregon Trail, um, the federal government was very involved in making that process work and in helping the people who migrated. Federal delegations surveyed the trail and helped like market. Um, the military uh, protected the trail. In the 1850s, 90% of the U.S. military was in the West, like along the trail corridors, protecting it, Um and like the forts that you stop at, those are all military forts that are bringing supplies. It's a place to restock. It's a place to rest. The military would go out and rescue, um, lost or sick people. Um, and like they, you know, they were responsible for bringing the mail along the trail, all of that. And then when people got to Oregon, um, they, you know, they made laws that made that land available before the United States had even negotiated treaties with native people. Like this was still native land. Um, but they, there's this, um, they, there's this law, the Oregon, um, donation land law of 1850 that basically if you got to Oregon, you got, um, you got 320 acres of free land. I say free with heavy air quotes. How many? Uh, 320 acres. That's so fucking big. Yeah. Like yeah. one acre, you'll get winded just running laps around one acre. You'll have, you'll pass the fuck out. 320. Yes. Yeah. Right. And it's free to the settlers, right? But it comes at a really big cost to the indigenous people who were already there. So what would happen with that where like they would say like, okay, well, this is mine. But if that was like intersecting on like a land where a community was already or there was a family already, did that create like war and like conflict and like bloody stuff? Yeah, um, it absolutely did. Um, so this is like when settlers would show up and they'd start like grazing their cattle. Um, they were grazing their cattle on um, the food that many Native people needed to survive. It's not like they had gardens, but they were wild gardens, right? Like they knew where to go to get food. Um, and just because they didn't have a fence around it didn't mean it wasn't like their traditional hereditary like food place. Um, right. And so cattle would graze and then they destroy native food, native people would be hungry, and then they would kill cattle. And in response to native people killing cattle, um, the settlers in the area would go and kill a whole bunch of native people, not even the ones who were responsible for, um, for killing the cattle. And this is how you get, um, the genocide that happened in California in the 1860s. Um, it's settlers accusing native people of stealing their cattle and committing what they call depredations and then um, retaliatory attacks on indigenous people. 
Okay, so one thing that we learned from one of our past guests, Dr. Brittany Jock, she taught us that like the ways that like colonialism like disrupted food sources for Native people. Because like if you like, but Oregon Trail, I don't even think we got that far. Because if that was like a gigantic literal like 1800s highway that wasn't concrete, but it was like, you know, a literal trail with like signs and there was like, you know, like soldiers protecting it and stuff. If you were relying on say like a native nation north of that and you were like a native nation south of that, I would imagine that this Oregon Trail like cut off a lot of really important trade and communication between nations that were already there and had like these dynamic economies and dynamic like societies. Yeah, it did make um, it did make some of those interactions a lot more difficult. Um, The biggest impact is the mass um, the mass extermination of the buffalo, which many Native people in the area relied on, like the Lakota, the Pawnee, um, the Omaha. Um, and I mean, like the Pawnee also planted corn and beans and squash and like they were agricultural as well. But still really, um, you know, the buffalo were an important food source. Um, and it's crazy how fast that happens, um, because in the 1850s, people who were traveling across the Oregon Trail talked about like how there were just buffalo for miles. Um, and by the 1870s, there are hardly any left. And it's because a whole bunch of different reasons. Part of it is, um, the emigrants themselves, like overgrazing their own animals and out competing the buffalo. Um, there's all of these stories in people's journals. And some people who traveled across the trail were uncomfortable with this about like people just killing buffalo for fun. Like they couldn't even take the meat with them and they would just leave it to rot. Um, and then, um, and then you have like when they're starting to build the railroads through the area, um, people would, you know, like railroads would hire, um, would hire people to like shoot out the back of the train, um, to kill the buffalo because buffalo versus train, not going to end well for the train. Um, and then there's some evidence that, uh, the United States government may also have, uh, wanted to kind of speed up the uh, extermination of the buffalo to get Native people to comply with removal. I think so much of the problem is, is that like we center, well, like the United States centers like this pioneer experience or like the colonizer view of of what early American, like, you know, air quote American experience was like. Um, Because obviously America wasn't even called America and Columbus didn't discover America. There was thriving communities that were interdependent on each other. There were native communities, indigenous communities who lived along its route. And you've mentioned some of them before, but I'd love to hear it again. Yeah, so... One of the hard things about this question is that there's like hundreds of native nations who lived, who lived along the route. Um, the, you know, there's the Pawnee in what is currently Nebraska. Um, and they, uh, you know, there, they are people who practice both agriculture, um, and they also participated in, um, like biannual buffalo hunts and, you know, they're, um, they traded over long distances. They were part of the fur trade, all of that. And then there's, you know, there's other nations like the Lakota, um, who controlled a vast amount of territory. And actually in 1851, um, they signed a treaty with the United States that's known as the Horse Creek Treaty or the 1851 Treaty of Fort Laramie. And they're like, the United States in that treaty, they're not giving up any land. 
um, the Lakota, but they said basically this massive chunk of, um, what is currently, um, both of the Dakotas, part of Nebraska, Wyoming, Montana, that all of this land, yep, that's Lakota land. Um, so the Lakota were pretty big, um, a pretty big nation. As you go along the trail, um, you know, you're crossing into different indigenous peoples, homelands. Um, you know, there's, um, like the, where the trail ended along the Columbia River is, um, like Cayuse, Walla Walla, um, uh, Umatilla and other, um, there's dozens of nations in that area. Um, uh, the trail crossed through Nez Perce territory, through Cheyenne territory. Um, so yeah, so many different native nations. Um, that it's impossible to name them all. What history do we see of like native culture from this time period, like cultural history? Nations like the Cheyenne um, used what's called winter counts. Um, so there's actually ways that you can see this history from indigenous perspectives, because what they would do is they'd take buffalo hide usually, um, and then they would paint um, on the buffalo hide. There would be a person who was like their historian, their record keeper, and they would record an image um, that represented each year, sometimes two images for every year. Um, and the, like they'd use those um, as kind of... Um, as kind of mnemonic devices to jumpstart telling their history of that particular year. And sometimes it was like, sometimes it was military encounters. Sometimes it was natural events like um, a particularly busy meteor shower, um, all of those things, right? They would, they would record them. And then there would be people whose responsibility it was to kind of tell the longer histories attached to those, to, to those documents at this point in time, um, native people were really just kind of living their lives. Um, even as the Oregon trail was, was starting, um, they, uh, you know, um, the, the Pawnee people had their, their villages where, um, you know, there were their, their, uh, their crops, their corn, their beans, their squash, everything. Um, and, uh, that's where, you know, the site of a lot of ceremonies that are very important to the Pawnee people. And then, um, twice a year, they would go on buffalo hunts as pretty much entire communities. Um, and, you know, they had really extensive, like, ecological knowledge about the place that they lived, what plants could be used as medicines, what were um, dangerous, all of those things. And like, we often don't think of that as like scientific knowledge, but it was very much a scientific understanding of the world around them. And this is true. Like you can see that knowledge for all sorts of different indigenous people um, passed down through oral tradition um, or like just in like their everyday practices that have continued from generation to generation. Um, another, another thing that happened, not directly as a byproduct of the trail, but in relation to um, more and more European and American people coming into the area is um, disease outbreaks. 
early 1840s, the Pawnee, for instance, um, were impacted by a smallpox epidemic that killed about a quarter of the population. And so this is also a time when the people, Native people were processing like massive trauma um, and were, you know, continuously picking themselves back up and trying to build new futures um, for themselves and their communities. And, you know, they did it again and again. Do we know anything about like family interactions or like what like a family unit would look like? Yeah, well, and that's another question that is different for every single Native nation. Um, That's the thing with Native history is that uh, it's always different for every Native nation. Um, And it depends too, like... Uh, family, family units would like change seasonally. Who you were living with would depend on like where you were and how much food was in the area and everything. Um, and so like on the plains, um, the Lakota, Lakota kinship networks, right? People would live generally in like more, ex- not the nuclear family that we're thinking about, right? It was a lot of relatives living and working together. Um, and multiple generations in, um, in the same, in the same house. I keep coming back to what I feel like I learned in like third, fourth, fifth, sixth grade, trying to say that like the colonizers were the victims. And that just isn't, that really seems like it is not at all the case. No. Um, and those like those narratives of settler innocence do a lot of work, like you said, in justifying the violence that comes along with colonialism and the dispossession that comes along with colonialism. But uh, Native communities, and again, even just the diversity of Native communities is one of the coolest things, right? Because like you, there's an endless amount of information that you can learn um, about all of these different nations and their own particular organizations. Like that's just, I think that is just so cool. It's one of my favorite things about being a native historian is there's just always more people to learn about. Like native women hardly ever show up in textbooks. At the beginning of semesters when I'm teaching, I ask students to name native people and they can name like Sitting Bull um, and Crazy Horse and Geronimo and a whole, actually quite a few Native men, usually warriors, they can list, but like all they've got is Pocahontas. Native women get erased and Native women have always played such an important role in Native communities and not just like having kids and raising families, although that was very respected, you know, like that was an important role um, for Native women, but like Native women often controlled property, right? Like um, for the Pawnee who are like matri- matrilineal, right? When you're growing that corn, when it's your lodge, um, and I think this is true of the Lakota too, for like their teepees, their lodges, um, like that's women's property. Um, they're the ones who are responsible for it. Um, and that makes it a lot easier. I know, um, I know this is true of the Ojibwe who are further east, right? Those are, that's my, my people. Um, like if you, if you were having marital issues, you could just set your husband's stuff outside of the, of the home. And then that's, that's it. It's not his home anymore. Um, and women had a great deal of autonomy. Women participated in politics. Women even 
depending on their own personal choices, they could be in the military, right? You can almost always find an example of a woman who was taking on those kinds of traditionally masculine roles. Um, and there was a lot more flexibility for gender and gender roles um, among Native people who didn't necessarily always see things as that strict binary. How did the activity along the um, the trail affect indigenous peoples? We talked a little bit about like health and well-being and some of the outbreaks of like smallpox and like some of like the disease that colonization brought through. But we've also learned a little bit about from like Dr. Elizabeth Rule about like treaties. And then you've mentioned a few treaties. The big thing that it did was increase the desire for indigenous land. Um, and so kind of increase the pressure on the federal government to negotiate those treaties. Um, and, you know, the thing with treaties is that um, from indigenous perspectives, treaties are supposed to be about these living relationships. They're not a sale of land. They're not like a one-time exchange, but they establish relationships that can be carried forward into into the future. Um, and I think the, um, the Black Hills is one of the better examples of, of this, um, and the theft of the Black Hills. Um, so I had mentioned earlier that in 1851, the United States signed a treaty with the Lakota Nation, um, that said, like, all of this land is yours. We recognize your boundaries, you're a sovereign nation, et cetera. Well, when, um, when the, United States found gold in like Montana and tried to build a trail through Lakota territory in violation of the treaty. Um, the Lakota people said no. Um, and then you have this, that, that kind of like the settlers blamed the Lakota people for starting a war. Um, but what really happened is like the settlers kept invading Lakota territory. And what were the Lakota people supposed to do when nobody was respecting the treaty that they had negotiated? Um, and so you have what sometimes is called Red Clouds War. Um, and the Lakota people fight the United States to a standstill. The United States absolutely cannot win. Um, and they negotiate, um, they negotiate another treaty in 1868. Um, that's the Treaty of Fort Laramie. The Lakota agree to cede some land to sell some land. Um, but they also retain a big chunk of their homeland. Um, and they're very clear, like they're, they don't sign the treaty until the United States burns its forts that were within Lakota territory. Like they're not backed into a corner here. They signed this treaty with a significant amount of political and military power. And then it's in the aftermath that the United States breaks this treaty. Um, one of the provisions in the treaty is that the United States is supposed to remove anybody who goes into Lakota territory without permission. Um, and then in comes Custer, um, discovers like he, there's gold in the Black Hills and pretty much immediately the United States takes that land, breaks the treaties. Um, and there's this whole other escalating series of like the United States massacring villages, et cetera, um, and total war and burning Lakota supplies. Um, and the Lakota people refuse to sell their land. So, the United States Congress just passes a law saying this land is ours now. Um, and they force the Lakota people onto reservations using a combination of military and like starvation tactics. Um, and 
you know, the Lakota people have fought this for years. And in the 1980s, this went to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court agreed. Yes, the United States stole this land. The Black Hills are stolen. Um, but because of non-Native people's property rights in the area, um, they say you can't have the land back. That would be a violation of people's personal property. So we stole it and now it's ours. You can't have it back, basically. So they paid a multi-million dollar settlement to the Lakota people that is still sitting in a bank because the Lakota people refuse to touch the money because they don't want money. They want the Black Hills. To get back to the question that you had asked, right, about how the Oregon Trail um, impacts the political relationships for Native people, like I said, it makes um, it increases the United States desire for for land. Um, and this is the same time where the United States passed the Homestead Act. Um, and this was another one of those quote unquote free land, um, programs for Americans. Was that in 1870? That was 1862. Mm. Um, so it was during the Civil War. Um, and you know, this was only 160 acres, not 320 anymore, scaled back. This is the United States basically mobilizing settlers as the vanguard of colonialism, right? They put, they use settlers to claim this land with their bodies, with their farms, et cetera. Um, and that displaces Native people even more. So it's part of like an ongoing process um, of settler colonialism. Because the Oregon Trail was in its height from 1841 to 1869, seven years before that decline, 1862, this Homestead Act is passed in the height of the Civil War. People are going west and west, Uh, you know, air quote Americans are. They are settling this land with their bodies, claiming the land, which is causing further displacement of Native people, further food interruption. Um, and also, that treaty was signed in 1868, the that Fort Laramie Treaty that you were saying, which that's the year before the Oregon Trail really drops off, which then after that treaty is when it's like broken and then they just stole the land. So does that whole like that whole power grab land steal, does that happen in the 1870s? Yes, that's the 1870s. And the only reason that the Oregon Trail um, like drops off in 1869 is because that's when the Transcontinental Railroad is completed. Um, so people don't have to walk across the plains and the desert anymore. They can take a train. So that's why it led to its decline. And then how did that yeah. affect uh, Native peoples? Because then they're like, well, fuck, now there's a goddamn train track separating it. So the trains, again, that leads to like faster extermination of the buffalo. The other thing that we forget about railroads is that you need supplies to build them, right? Um, and where are those, the like the timber to build the railroad, um, uh, the, the railroad ties? Where is that coming from? So much of it is coming from indigenous lands. Um, and so much of it, like, and native, like native lands are being exploited for the supplies to build railroads as well. So there's, it's tangled up in all of these environmental consequences and um, consequences on indigenous people's real life. At the same time in the West, native people are being confined to reservations, often through the use of military force. I've had certain people in my life where I've really gotten into fights about this with them because I'm like, we assign such this like, you know, judgment on other other uh, countries that have done similar things, but then it's like we so often don't look at 
the one that was perpetuated and still in many ways is continually being perpetuated against Native people now. I think what makes it so hard for people to talk about, for most Americans to talk about, is that it's really hard to think of your ancestors as having any sort of genocidal intent. They didn't mean for any of this to happen. Um, they, that's that, you know, like that's, it's very, it's a very difficult history to reckon with and very difficult stories, um, to have to kind of untangle and tell and how, you know, how, how can you tell a narrative about westward expansion as this like beautiful, triumphant progress of pioneers when at the same time, this is causing, um, the deaths, the displacement, um, and other forms of trauma for tens of thousands of indigenous people. Like those are very difficult stories to try to reconcile, especially when so many of us have those kinds of, um, like our families are part of this story. Like I've never been able, I'm indigenous, right? I can't separate myself from a lot of these stories because they are my family's stories. Um, and it's, it's, yeah, I think, it's hard to tell honest, complete stories when it makes you feel guilty or bad. And guilt isn't the point, right? That's not the point of telling these stories. I think the point is that we have to reckon with what happened in the past in order to build a different future together and to do better in the future. And these are still questions that are very much in place, right? Because like, so let's think about Nebraska um, and, um, the Keystone pipeline, um, that, that whole, um, that whole debate, like that was going through indigenous lands. These are lands that are very much involved in the dispossession that happened as a pretty direct result of the Oregon trail and westward expansion. Um, and this is an example where indigenous people, like the Pawnee, the Omaha, the Lakota, the Dakota, they came together with a lot of like farmers and ranchers, non-native farmers and ranchers, and built a coalition to, um, you know, to protect their homelands together, right? And to, to stop the pipeline, um, from being put in place. And they were successful. And I think that that's, you know, that's the kind, like if we, um, if, we can find ways to build a future that both respects indigenous sovereignty, right? And allows indigenous people to maintain their relationships with the land that can be a better future for all of us. Yes. So what are, I mean, I know that this is like a really big question, but how have traditions and histories and cultural practices been lost, uh, lost due to the Oregon Trail, the legacy of the Oregon Trail? Well, so for Indigenous peoples, um, and I'm generalizing, um, but I think this is true if you were to look at different nations, the legacy of the Oregon Trail is dispossession and being separated from homelands um, for Indigenous people who, generally speaking, right, like d- define ourselves in relationship to the places where we are from, the places where our people were created, the places where our ancestors' bones are buried. Um, it is like that is a massive 
loss. That's something that those relationships are difficult to rebuild. I keep talking about the Pawnee and I maybe should talk less about the Pawnee, but that's what's on my mind today. Um, so like they were forcibly removed to Oklahoma. Um, and this happens in the aftermath of the Oregon Trail. Um, it's in like the 18, the 1860s that they're forcibly removed. Um, and when they got to Oklahoma, they couldn't, their, their corn wouldn't grow. It was a different environment, um, a different soil, and they couldn't get their corn to grow. Um, but the Pawnee families, like they put their seeds in books, they put their seeds in jars, they put them away. Um, and for generations, they just, you know, they, kept those seeds, they passed them down from generation to generation. And now, um, like families have brought those seeds out again in the last like 10 or 20 years. And, um, they are replanting them in Nebraska. Actually, um, this goes back to kind of the story about the pipeline. Um, there's a non-native farmer here who donated some of his land to the Pawnee, like returned the land to the Pawnee people and they plant corn there every year now. And that's like, so even though there is like, yes, there is massive loss and there is massive trauma and there is massive dislocation. Um, indigenous people found ways to carry their traditions, to carry their knowledge forward through generations and continue to, you know, to plant the corn that their, that their ancestors planted to have these indigenous futures in the present. Not only do we need to recenter the narratives to understand the injustices that were done, but I also think it's important that we um, recenter the narratives around like indigenous and native joy and indigenous and uh, native resilience and how beautifully complex and resilient and just incredible all these different nations' cultures are. So to the same question of how did the Oregon Trail um, and the legacy of that, you know, with, with the loss, how, what are some other stories that, I mean, you just told us one about the corn, which is beautiful. But is there any other stories of like perseverance or resilience um, that are particularly like celebratory? Yeah, there's so many that I could tell. Um, I'll since I have been kind of on the eastern end of the trail, I'll go west. Um, and there's, you know, there are Native nations in California, Oregon, and Washington right now that are working on like the Yurok people um, are reintroducing, like they've put a lot of effort to reintroduce condors. Um, to California, right? And those are, you know, that's a bird that is important to those people. And they, um, like was the population was decimated by the impacts of the gold rush and all of this migration. Um, and, you know, these birds are returning to the Yurok homelands once again. Um, there are other stories, like there's this island. Um, it's called the, uh, the, it's called, I might be mispronouncing it, but it's Tuluat Island. Um, and it's, um, an island off the coast of California where there, this is where the Wyoke people held their world renewal ceremonies every year. Um, this was a really important place. Um, and, um, there, they were massacred on this island. There was a massacre of the Wyoke people by settlers, emigrants who had recently come west. Um, 
And they didn't hold their world renewal ceremony there for so many years. But, um, but just recently in the past 20, 30 years, they got part of the island back. They repurchased, they worked, they saved the money, they repurchased part of the island. And then even more of it was just returned by the Eureka Township recently. Um, and they're holding world renewal ceremonies again, um, in this, in the same spot. There's a, um, there's a native historian, um, Kacha Risling Baldi. She writes about this story. It's her family story. It's her people's story. She was involved in this, um, in this effort to get the land back. Um, and she talks about how like the people today are dancing in the same spot that their ancestors were dancing. They're renewing the world again. And that is just such a beautiful story of continuation, joy, and sur- like not just surviving, but thriving. Um, that I think really represents what a lot of Native people are working to renew their relationships with their homelands, despite this long history of dispossession today. And as 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 we're talking about rebuilding our understanding of the Oregon Trail and around uh, understanding Indigenous narratives, um, how can we help to rebuild our understanding of that, like vis-a-vis, say, like your work on the new Oregon Trail game? Yeah. So, um, first of all, that was like the most exciting thing I have ever done as a historian. That's like the millennial dream, right? Getting to work on the Oregon Trail. I mean, we all grew up playing it. Um, it's the most fun I've ever had with history. Um, but so the game makers, right? They're coming at it from a different perspective, right? But they recognize the problems with the, um, with the original game. The game is still the same, right? Um, it's still, you join a wagon party, you go west, you can die of dysentery. Um, <laughs> it's the, it's the same game. Um, but along the way, there are, um, stories about the Pawnee people, right? And about the impact that the trail had on their lives. There are stories about like native people just trying to find each other across long distances, trying to find like, it's about native families there. Um, there's, um, like they tried to create stories that incorporated indigenous knowledge about the prairies and the plants and all of that and like fishing and that sort of thing, just to like, include it alongside the other stories. And I think that's a first step, right? Because when you have to recognize that this place was not empty, that it was full of indigenous people who were living these vibrant lives um, and who, you know, more often than not, um, native people, when they interacted with settlers along the trail, like they were cooperative relationships, right? It's not until... Um, it's not until like later in the trail's history when settlers were really taking native lands and resources that conflict, um, developed. My hope as a hopeful historian, um, is that, um, it will help people reckon with this complicated, often painful history. And because like so many other things, we shouldn't have to rely on like a 2D, uh, you know, computer game to learn about really vital history. I feel like there's a problem with textbooks. How do we need to get our textbooks better? How do we need to get our like elementary and middle school education better? Yeah, they need to include more indigenous perspectives. Um, and not only like the biggest problem is that um, native people often show up for a little bit at the beginning 
Um, and then, you know, maybe they pop up again for the Trail of Tears. Then they're gone. Maybe you get the Wounded Knee Massacre in 1890. And there's almost never natives after 1890. And plenty of studies have been done to show that that is true. Um, and I think even more important than textbooks, maybe, um, is that we, like, we need to make sure that teachers are learning this history and are learning these stories in their, as part of their training. Because if your teacher doesn't know any different than the Oregon Trail game version or the two paragraph textbook version, they can't, like, they, they can't help their native students, their non-native students understand these histories better. They have to know it first. Um, and that also means like it's kind of a, rippling outward effect because that also means that there need to be more native historians, native scholars teaching at the university level and training teachers. So we just need to do a better job of getting native perspectives, native voices and like literal native people um, into the education system as um, as teachers, as administrators, as college professors, as textbook writers, all of that, um, you know, I think that it's actually including Native people that will make the difference. I think one of the ways that we uh, also need to challenge a narrative is like we've seen a lot and, you know, like with monuments and with like uh, commemorative sites with like, you know, Columbus and other people who are like, oh, he was great. He was really nice, like had great outfits, like was really nice. You know, the those three ships had cute names and all. And it's like, no, no, no. Like we need to reimagine him because he was a whole nightmare, like a whole pill that Columbus. So how do how do we need to like change the commemorative sites and like like monuments to to reflect the true nature of the history better too? One part is um, inclusion, like making sure there are indigenous people remembered and recognized, and then like. I don't know. It's so, it's so hard because what else can you do other than tear down a Columbus statue, right? Like you can't, no amount of signage is going to change the fact that those statues promote a narrative that honors and memorializes um, someone who was quite frankly, a trash human being. What about like sports teams and iconography? I think that there's a lot of people who are like, well, a lot of like specifically white people who are like, it's not a big deal. We're doing this. And I also saw that guy owns the Atlanta Braves like team or whatever. He was like, we got permission from the people down here. Like they're fine with us doing that. Like I definitely read that. How problematic. I think I know how problematic, but can you tell us how problematic this stuff is? Super problematic. Yeah. Um, it's, and it's, you, you can always find like native people aren't a monolith. Native people have different perspectives and different, like, yeah. Um, there's always like, you can always find a native person who will take the non-native person's side. Like there's, there's always going to be someone around who will like, I don't know. I, it, that's hard to say because like, you don't want to throw other native people under the bus, but like, um, you know, they're very careful about like which native people they talk to. Um, because like, if you ask, they, I think they talk to the Eastern Cherokee, but there's tens of thousands of Cherokee in Oklahoma who hate the tomahawk chop, right? Like there's a diverse amount of opinions. Um, and you know, the question is like, um, 
like we know this is harmful. There has been plenty of plenty of research, psychological research, educational research, et cetera, that makes it very clear that these stereotypes are harmful to native children. Um, these stereotypes are harmful to native people in general. Um, but so many people just don't like, don't seem to care. I like, what is it going to take away from the Atlanta Braves fan to not be able to do the tomahawk chop? Literally nothing. They will come up with another chant. They will figure out some other way to show support for their team, but, um, they just don't care enough about indigenous people, about actual indigenous people to think about the impact of their actions. Um, and I think it's hard to, I think there's some defensiveness, like you, it's not fun to be told that you're doing something offensive. It is hard to get that feedback, to process it and to make a change like that. That takes a lot of self-awareness. Um, and I, I struggle with that with other things in my life, right? Like that is a, it's, it's hard. So I don't know. Yeah, it is hard and it's not fun, but yeah. think about the actual lived pain and experience of other right. people. And I just feel like yeah. white defensive people get so defensive and then don't actually think about the real world ramifications of like what these things do. And that is yeah. just so frustrating. I was in second grade. The first time I remember someone war whooping at me, you know, like this, this is something that, I mean, ask any native person and we all have experiences of, you know, people war whooping at us, tomahawk chopping at us. Like we, yeah, this is something that pretty much every native person has experienced and people today, right? Like the boarding school generation, the kids who were forcibly taken from their families um, and sent to these assimilation schools, um, they, that's people's grandparents. That's people's parents. That's not like, this is not people who, this isn't generations ago. This is very much immediate and real history. And, um, what, what those, what things like the tomahawk chop, what sports mascots in general do is they feed into this idea that indigenous people only exist in the past, right? That we aren't part of the present and that we won't be part of the future. And those like, that's, that's, that's damaging like on an individual level and it's damaging on an institutional level as well, because like that makes it harder to advocate for, um, for legislation, um, that acknowledges indigenous sovereignty that takes indigenous issues into, into account. If indigenous people are just like in the past or have, have to fit this stereotype, then it makes it, yeah, it makes indigenous people's political, economic and, um, cultural needs much harder to respect to today. So I think one thing that I do just have to call attention to for my, just for our listeners that in, in this whole recording, literally at the very end, we got to assimilation schools, didn't even cover that throughout, like, which is really serious, huge, egregious, like national blood on like the American government, the Canadian government. Like this is like huge atrocities that were perpetuated that we literally couldn't even get through all the other atrocities to even get that in the end. And it's not even just that there. I mean, there's also like, I didn't know what the blood quantum was or what like, and that's also at the very end of this podcast. And we couldn't even broach that subject. And so, and I don't want it to be like, cause I do think that we need to center like, Native joy and indigenous joy and resilience and and it is so fascinating the difference in like 
familial units, dwellings, how how different folks ate, how different folks built stuff, how different folks like understood like the world around them, which is literal science. And that all of those things are so just I am fascinated and want to learn more about that. And I think that's like really where a lot of like the cool stuff is. But you you don't necessarily get to do that if you haven't reckoned with like what these indigenous people have been through. And a lot of that was literally because of it's like the colonialism. It's that's what it is. And so, yeah, I don't really know exactly yeah. what that, but I just think that it's like, I, I'm not trying to like have our listeners like necessarily like think that we could have ever had this solved in an hour and a half. That's like kind of what that last point was towards. There's a lot here that we have to continually deal with and peel back the, the layers on and look at. Um, I do feel like, one thing that we kind of touched on that we didn't totally touch on was like what because we talked about like enslaved peoples and how the Oregon Trail was kind of happening like throughout the Civil War. What was like what was like the intersectionality or like uh, like interactions of like indigenous people with like people who were enslaved? So that's a really hard one because like there are native nations that participated in slavery, right? Um, there's a couple like the Cherokee, for instance, the Choctaw participated in slavery and have their own really comp, like I, as someone who is not Cherokee or Choctaw, um, you know, like those are complicated histories that they are reckoning with to this day because they, you know, there's questions about what, um, there, there's questions about like what can and should, like how to treat the descendants of the people they enslaved who are Cherokee, who are Choctaw in there, you know, there's so much anti-Blackness in the world around them that Native people have not been immune to that. Um, and there's also like forms of slavery that took place in the American West among Indigenous people as well. It's different. It's very complicated. Like that would need another, you know, five hours of conversation to explain. But um, the there's also so many examples of indigenous people and black people, people of color more generally, like building communities together, um, in, in places, um, like California, um, in places even like the, like New England. Um, but yeah, that, that one's a really hard one. Um, it's also true that like when, um, when, uh, black freed people who traveled the Oregon Trail got to Oregon. So Oregon was, um, a free state, right? Like it was supposed to be a free state, but they also passed laws that said no black people can live here. Black mm. people can't own land here. Um, and so like they'd get to, like they couldn't live in Oregon country. Um, when they got to the end of the Oregon Trail, um, and like the Oregon, the law that, um, uh, that allowed like for the land claims, right? That, um, 320 acres or whatever, like it explicitly listed white people and people of less than, um, 50% Native American descent, right? Like it was a racially explicit law that law. barred people of color, right? And so like, yeah, those are complicated and entangled histories. So then what would they have to do? Would they just have to like go to California or like was Vancouver in existence yet? They would just like have to go on a whole other journey. Yeah. Um, and it's not really like you'll see places where it says like this law was never enforced, but like I don't, they're also like it, 
uh, black people made choices on where to live based on the existence of that law. Right. And they couldn't own land. And that's a really big, like that was, you know, again, that land is all entangled with indigenous people's relationships with land. But, um, but like that was the reason to go West was to get land because land is what you need for the American dream, right? Like that's a, that's the most foundational part of it at this point in time. So yeah. So very complicated legacies there as well. So Margaret, I feel like um, my last question for you of the episode is, will you come back and do more episodes with us? Because I feel like this was like pre, like pre-entry, like, you know, like haven't been in college for like 17 years. So it was like pre-101, just like kind of correcting some of my earlier elementary, middle school, like, you know, still, still, you know, graduate of white American, like, you know, elementary and middle school and like high school. This is not one episode. This has to be like a series if you'll come back and if you'll have us, we're obsessed with Margaret Hedall. <laughs> yeah, there's that. Well, thank you. Uh, there's 10,000 years of Native history with like, more than 500 nations. So yeah, I can talk about this for literal days. <laughs> we got to have another talk. We got to have you back. I just, I had so much fun yes. learning from you and thank yes. you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Van Ness. Our guest this week was Professor Margaret Hiddle. You'll find links to her work in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thanks so much to her for letting us use it. If you enjoyed our show, please introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at CuriousWithJBN. Our socials are run and curated by Middle Seat Digital. Our editor is Andrew Carson. Getting Curious is produced by me, Erica Ghetto, and Zara Krim. 